Hello, and welcome to the Pathmic Psychiatry for Primary Care podcast. Welcome. Today's episode is on sleep. This is Dr. Mercedes Kwiatkowski from our Palo Alto clinic and our regional T2, who is one of our sleep experts and runs our CBT for insomnia group. Welcome, Mercedes. Thank you, Whitney. I'm so excited to be here. Talking about sleep is one of my favorite topics. What are some common sleep myths that people have? This one common myth that we talk about in our sleep groups is that you should spend more time in bed, that spending more time in bed equals better sleep. And people will say, well, even if I'm not tired, I should just go ahead and go to bed and I'll just lay there until I fall asleep. And in the mornings, even if I can't fall back asleep, I'm going to just lay in bed and that that rest is good for me. And actually what we find is the best sleep efficiency is you spend only the amount of time in bed that you're actually going to sleep. That's kind of your goal. So if you know you're not ready for bed yet, don't get in bed, go do some wind down activity or do something calming. And then when you're really nodding off or really ready to fall asleep, that's when you should go get in bed. And in the morning, if you can't fall back asleep, then unfortunately you should get up and go do something. Even if it's something quiet and calm in the morning, you should get out of bed. That'll help with your sleep overall. That's great advice. Any other things that you'd like to share? It helps to go over a little bit of sleep hygiene that we might not all know about. I've learned a lot about sleep hygiene just in the past couple of years. The first one is, I don't know if you have a guess of what the ideal ambient temperature is for your bedroom. Somewhere in the 60s? Yeah, 68 degrees is actually the ideal temperature. Uh, some people don't like that, and I'm not responsible for your air conditioning bill, but we find that if your bedroom is cool, dark, and quiet, then people tend to sleep better. And you can use a blanket or whatever you need to feel comfortable, but trying to keep your room cooler than you might think can be really helpful. The other tip that I learned is that we also have a digestive circadian rhythm in addition to our sleep circadian rhythm. So one suggestion I have for people who are having a hard time falling asleep is really try to move your meals or your last meal, I should say, earlier in the evening with preferably at least four hours before you plan to go to sleep. And if you like to eat a big meal for dinner, try to eat that even earlier, potentially. And the same thing with alcohol. Alcohol can impact our sleep onset and it can fragment our sleep. So really, if you're going to have a drink, try to have it at least two to three hours before you plan to go to bed. What would your advice be for our primary care colleagues if they present that information to the patients and they say, oh, I do all of those things, but I still can't sleep? Good question, Whitney. A lot of our struggles with sleep is actually in our mind and the way that we talk to ourselves. If people are really interested and willing to do the work, I encourage them to consider cognitive behavioral therapy for sleep. These are things like what we do is we look at how we're talking to ourselves about our sleep. So a lot of people I work with will say things like, oh, I'm so bad at sleeping or tonight's going to be another terrible night, or I know I'm going to be waking up, or if I don't get a good night's sleep, tomorrow is going to be a disaster and I won't be able to get anything done. 
If those thoughts feel common or familiar to you or your patients, the first thing to do is kind of stop and really think about those thoughts and think, you know, is that actually true? Or is that just one, a story I'm telling myself? And we work on trying to identify these negative thoughts and try to reframe them. So it could be, you know, even if I don't get much sleep tonight, I'm, I'm still going to get through the day tomorrow. Or, you know, just because my I, I'm having a hard time falling asleep, I'm still going to be okay. My body will take the sleep that it needs. And it may not be as much as I think it needs tonight, but everything's going to be okay. We're just trying to be more neutral about our sleep. And sometimes if we can decrease that negativity in our mind, we're a little bit more relaxed and we're able to fall asleep easier. And that shift can take time. I also am a huge fan of winding down. I tell everyone I know to do this if they're having a hard time falling asleep. So like I said earlier, sometimes we just hop into bed because you know our Apple watch is telling us to or whatever, and we're not really ready for sleep yet. So I encourage people to spend about an hour before bed winding down. Now this could be anything that's kind of relaxing. Um, for me, I like to do color by number. Some people like to cross stitch, you know, watching a relaxing TV show, not like Game of Thrones or something scary or exciting. You can read again, as long as it's not like a page turner and you just keep wanting to read the next chapter. And you do that in a quiet space. That's not your bed. So you can, this can be really fun. You can pick a corner in your bedroom or another room in the house where you have a kind of cozy setup with a blanket and dim lighting and spend that hour kind of reflecting and relaxing. And then as you feel yourself, your eyes getting heavy and you're getting kind of sleepy, that's when you go get into bed. And that also helps your brain with the routine of going to sleep. So your brain knows, okay, I did this, I did that. And I know once I start winding down time, that means that bedtime's coming next. So let me get ready for what's coming next rather than, oh, I watched this exciting show and now I'm expected to shut off and go to bed. That can be kind of confusing. Oh, another important tip I have that I love is I love learning more about our sleep phases. And what a lot of people don't know is that our first two sleep phases are very light. The first stage of sleep is so light that 50% of people in studies don't even know that they're asleep yet. And if you hear a loud sound in that phase, you'll wake up. And in stage two, it's again, such a light phase of sleep that 25% of people don't realize they're asleep. So oftentimes when we think like, oh my gosh, I've been laying here forever and I haven't slept yet, there's a good chance you were sleeping. You were just in a lighter phase of sleep. So if you're noticing that's a problem for you, what I encourage you to consider is telling yourself, oh, you know what? There's a 50% chance that I was asleep and I just didn't know it. So why not take the positive reframe on that thought rather than thinking negatively about it? Those are great tips. The other thing I remind people is as we get older, our need for sleep decreases, unfortunately, which is sometimes a sad fact for people, especially those who love sleep. But it just over time, our body needs less sleep as we get older. So our expectations around that also have to change. We might not get seven or eight hours of sleep anymore because our body doesn't really need it. And so that might mean that our bedtime or our waking time shifts as we get older. And that's something we kind of have to grapple with. And that that's totally normal. When would you consider a sleep aid for patients? I really try to avoid those for several reasons. I think most of us know that it can affect cognition and memory. 
it's often like a band-aid for patients and it can be so hard to get people off of Ambien or Clonopin or Xanax. So I really encourage people to strongly avoid prescribing those if they can. I would say if there's kind of an acute event that's either really traumatizing or, you know, if there's been a death in the family or some kind of big experience that you really aren't able to sleep and it's kind of a transient period of time that I might consider it, you know, or if a family member's in the hospital and you're, you need to get sleep so that you can care for them or something like that, that would be something worth considering. But if it's something that's more longer term or chronic, I'd really avoid sleep aids if possible. The other thing I like to talk about with sleep is we think about accumulating a sleep drive as the day goes on. So I like to think of it as a bank. And in the mornings when we wake up, we've had a good night's sleep, we have nothing in our sleep drive bank. As the day goes on, we want to gather currency because the more we have in our sleep drive bank at the end of the night, the easier it will be to fall asleep. So there are things we can do to increase our sleep drive bank. And that's things like being active, you know, intentional worry time where you're spending time getting the worry thoughts out of your head, um, eating healthy, moving our bodies, things like that. And the more of those things we do, the more we increase our sleep drive. And a lot of us might recognize that with our own kids, you know, or even my dog, you know, if they run around a lot during the day, they're going to be much more, it's much easier for them to go to bed at night. And adults are the same way. Things that we do that actually take away from our bank of sleep drive are taking naps during the day, eating or drinking, you know, kind of late, later in the day, spending a lot of time at night in our heads, kind of being angsty, you know, watching a lot of TV and being sedentary. Those things actually make our sleep drive bank smaller and then it can be harder to fall asleep. So for those patients who've been on sleep aids for long periods of time and would like to come off, how do you first approach that conversation with them? And maybe how may you need to encourage them to consider coming off their sleep aids? Good question. This is hard. And I usually approach it kind of as a ongoing commitment or contract with the patient. It uses a lot of motivational interviewing because they really have to be ready to make a change. The first thing is establishing, you know, why do you want to come off the sleep aid? What are the benefits to you that'll make this process worthwhile in the end? And there could be a lot of different reasons for that. And then we just talk about what the plan's going to be. I think people like to know what to expect. So in general, it's usually kind of a gradual taper off the medication. And once we get to lower doses, I remind people that it's in general, mostly psychological at that point. It's kind of a psychological dependence on it because at low doses, the sleep aids really aren't doing much to help with sleep induction. So when I tell people, you know, you, you're feeling the need for that, that whiff of Ambien or the whiff of Clonopin is really just your, your brain's dependency on it. And it's not actually a physiological need anymore. And sometimes once they can start making that shift in their mind, they can kind of let go of the need for that. And at the end of that taper, I remind people the next couple of weeks are, might be hard. You know, it can be a tr transition getting off of your sleep aid. So let's pick a time to do this when there's not a lot of other stressful things going on, or it's okay if you have a, a few nights of sleep that are disruptive, because it can take a little while for our bodies to adjust. Is there anything else you wanted to share? I am a huge fan of mindfulness. 
And that's a relatively new interest of mine. I used to kind of shrug off things like deep breathing or meditation or mindfulness. But as I've learned a lot about sleep, I think they actually do play a large role. One of the reasons we have a hard time sleeping is because we feel very activated in our bodies. And that could be from stress or excitement or fatigue, things that we're eating or drinking, exercise, any of those things can make us feel activated, whether it's good or bad. And so what really helps our body is a consistent way to downregulate that and to kind of decrease the activation so that sleep comes more naturally. And one of the easiest ways to do that is to meditate or practice kind of mindful thinking around bedtime. And, and that can be different for everybody. For me, I put on a meditation app every night before I go to bed and half the time I fall asleep in the middle of it. For other people that could be taking a bath, anything that kind of helps you just help your body relax can be hugely helpful. So if people haven't tried meditation or mindfulness and there are struggling sleep, I really encourage them to give that a shot. So let's say I have a patient in my office and they did have an acute event in their life and they say, I have a huge deadline at work. I need to sleep. Out of all of the potential short-term sleep aids, what would be your preference that was started? I still really try to avoid benzodiazepines or Ambien or Lunesta, anything like that because of the dependency issues and the cognitive issues. If it was someone that I was seeing in the office, I honestly try Vistaril, which is hydroxazine or Trazodone as short-term options. Part of the reason is because patients don't love them. (laughs) It does what it does, which might be helping them fall asleep, um, but there's usually not a great, otherwise great benefit to it. So it's not something I think they'll be dependent on long-term. The other one I might add is Remeron, a low dose of Remeron. Those are kind of the three that I consider depending on what else might be going on. If they also need a little bit of a mood boost or anxiety is bothering them. Thank you so much for joining us today. I know I learned a lot about sleep and I'm sure this will be very helpful for our listeners. Thank you, Whitney. This was so much fun. I, like I said, I love talking about sleep, so I'm happy to come back anytime.